Is investment something that's always been on your mind, but you don't quite know how to get started on that journey? We are here to set you on the right course. Welcome to My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We are all about getting out of the rat race through creating positive passive income through real estate investing. Here you'll hear from regular people just like you and the professionals who support us towards greater wealth. Learn before you earn, move from analysis to action, and find the right path to attaining the success that you've always dreamed of for yourself. Now, here's your host, Athena. Welcome to Investor's Corner. This is a weekly show where you can meet investors who are out of the rat race and the team members that support them. Today, this week, I have Richard Welling. He's CPA and founder of Welling & Associates, a tax firm with offices here in Torrance, California and Newport Beach, California. So welcome, Richard. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for joining us. So why don't we start by finding out a little bit about you, your background, educational, professional background, and what led you into accounting? Okay. I'm originally from this area. I went to West High and Torrance. I went to Long Beach State, got a degree in accounting and in finance. And then I worked for Arthur Anderson, downtown LA for seven years. I was a tax manager there. When I was at Arthur Anderson, I worked a lot in real estate. I was on the real estate team. And then I decided to go into business for myself and started a practice. So we have a firm that focuses on tax services for real estate, for investment management, and for private clients. And the private clients typically have a lot of real estate and investment holdings. That's what we focus on. Okay. And I think I remember you telling me once that you had a heavy base in builder, developer type people, I guess. Yeah, all types of real estate, people that are in construction, people that just every type of real estate transaction, public funds, private funds. So we've done work all the way from companies like Westfield and DeCurian and KB Homes and CB Richard Ellis. And we also have small investors that have a couple apartment buildings or a couple rental mm-hmm. homes, things like that. So we've done a lot of different work in real estate over the years. Kind of focused on the investor, how the new tax laws will affect investors going forward. Lots of people are excited. That's good, right? We're talking about real estate investors now, but I think generally the tax law was beneficial for real estate investors. The three main things is there's the new 20% deduction for that applies to owners of S corporations, partnerships, owners of rental properties, any flow through businesses that have qualified income, you can get up to 20% deduction of the income. So the new top bracket for individuals is 37%. And you can shave that by 20%, getting it down to 29.6%. So that's one of the big, most beneficial things. The other thing is there's much more generous depreciation expense deductions. Mm. So it gets pretty complicated, but there's a lot more opportunities to take what they call recovery deductions or depreciation deductions. For example, under the new law, if you buy a new building, let's say it's a $4 million building, and you do a cost segregation study, and you find out that, say, 25% or a million dollars of that relates to shorter life property, 5, 7, 15-year property. You can take bonus depreciation and deduct that whole million dollars in the first year. So I started to do that for some clients. So some of my clients are looking to buy some property before year end, then they may get like 500000 to a $1 million of depreciation deduction as long as they close escrow 
before the end of the year, and they can use that to shelter other income. Also, for certain types of property owners that make improvements that redo the roof, add HVAC, make certain tenant improvements for commercial property, there's a lot more beneficial ways to deduct that. So it gets pretty complicated, but in general, there's a lot you can accelerate the deductions a lot faster now. And the third thing is on 1031 exchanges, they used to apply to all like-kind property, and now it only applies to real estate. So you can't exchange cattle or horses or trees or equipment anymore, but you can still exchange real estate, which is good for real estate investors. Mm-hmm. And all investment or business real estate is considered like-kind. So you could exchange raw land for a factory or an apartment building for an office building. That's considered like-kind. The only caveat now is that if you own a property that has some identified tangible personal property, that may not be considered like-kind. So if you have a related business or if you've done a study and you've got a lot of short-life property, when you do an exchange, you have to make sure you get good advice that all the property that you're exchanging is really real property because every structure, every building may have some components that are personal property. So that's going to be something that people need to watch out for. So those are the main areas that affect real estate investors. Mm. So are you saying that you couldn't do that before or they fed it up even more? Because you It makes the cost segregation study more beneficial. Mm. Because before you would do a cost segregation study and you identify property that you could, instead of depreciating it over 27 and a half years for residential or 39 years for commercial, if you identify this shorter life property, and I know you've done this yourself, right? Mm-hmm. On some of your properties yeah. that you can do under the old rules, you could depreciate it under five, seven or 15 years. So right. you can get more depreciation the first several years. And now under the new law, you can get 100% bonus depreciation on anything you identify as the five, seven or 15 years. It accelerates it all into one year. So you get this big deduction in the first year when you place wow. the property in service. Now you have to make sure that you can take advantage of it because like, so you have to consider the passive loss rules. If you're, you know, like whether or not you're a real estate professional and if, or if you have other income, you can offset it against. So the caveat is for all this stuff, it's very complicated. The, the new law is it's the most exhaustive tax reform since at least 1986. And the old law was still complicated. So there's a lot of interesting things in the new law, but it requires somebody, there's a lot of special provisions and caveats that you have to be aware of. So that's where you need a good tax advisor to come in and kind of understand your facts and where you want to go and what you should do. And some of these things like the 20% deduction for qualified business income, for some of my clients, we looked at that right when the law passed and we changed some things early in the year because they weren't in a position where they could take full benefit of the new law. And Mm -hmm. so we had to rearrange certain things the way their business was structured in order to maximize the benefit of the new law. So you can't wait until November or December. You can't wait until you're pulling your information together next year in February. You have to start looking at it now. Right, right. So can you explain that a little bit better? I'm having trouble understanding, I guess, that if I have a pass-through, are you saying that even if I make income, I'm deducting it off my taxes owed, that 20%? or? Yeah, so the simple thing is, okay, so say you have a rental property. You own 100% rental property. And your taxable income on your Schedule E is $100,000 net after expenses. Mm -hmm. So 
that's eligible for this 20% deduction. So you'd report the 100000 on your return, and then you'd get $20,000 deduction in addition to that. So your net income from the property would effectively be 80000 So you get a $20,000 paper deduction. Oh. So that's the simple mm-hmm. way of looking at it. But then there's rules that say that it's the lesser of 20% of qualified business income or 50% of wages, or alternatively, it's the less of 20% of qualified business income or 25% of wages plus 2.5% of qualified property. So this code section is, say, 10 pages long with all this parts and subparts. And so you have to see where you're going to be impacted by it. So not everybody's going to get a full 20% deduction. So some people won't get anything and some people will get some portion of it. So, but real estate investors, they were given a a bone on it because it's the less of 20% of net income or two and a half percent of your depreciable property, which includes real estate, then that could help you with the deduction. Could be a big number potentially, right? Yeah. Also, the thing is, since payroll is involved too, you have to consider, like if you have a business with employees, consider what your payroll is going to be because that will impact the deduction. And so in some cases, just by adding $100,000 of payroll, it'll increase your deductions by 150000 because depending upon your fact situation. So it, it may impact your decision as far as whether you want to do something with employees or whether you want to do it by outsourcing or whether you have an independent contractor that you want to make an employee. Mm. And from the taxpayer side, the new law makes it better to be not an employee. The law probably hurts the most employees that live and work in high income tax states. Mm -hmm. So high income employees in California, New York, New Jersey, et cetera, they're generally paying more tax because they no longer can deduct their property taxes, their state income taxes, and they can't deduct miscellaneous itemized deductions anymore. So what the new law did was it took away some deductions, decreased the tax rates, and gave some benefits to business and some benefits to investors. The other thing is uh, REITs are treated favorably under new, the new law. So if you have an investment in a REIT, you can get that 20% deduction. So if you have a $50,000 of dividends from a REIT, then you would get a $10,000 deduction off of that. Mm. I'm trying to think of, well, I'll let you ask the questions because you probably know your audience better than I do. Yeah, yeah, I know. I like that. Okay, so maybe since we do have a lot of real estate people, can you help us understand who is considered a real estate professional or how does that definition, that's not like I get in my car and I show homes to potential home buyers. That's an IRS definition of real estate professional, right? Real estate professional can include real estate brokers and agents. So it's somebody that spends over a certain amount of time on real estate service businesses. And so it includes brokers and agents, and it includes people that own rental properties. Or So the time limit is that to be a real estate professional, you have to spend over your half of your time. And at least, if I remember correctly, I think it's at least 750 hours on real estate service businesses. And the rules get technical and there's details in it, like whether you're an employee of a business and how much percentage of this company you own and things like that. But so generally it's over 750 hours and over half your time. And the IRS, I've had, I've been through IRS audits on this. And if somebody just owns three rental properties and say they're semi-retired and they 
they spend all their time paying the property, paying the bills for the property and visiting the property and collecting the rent. They barely spend 751 hours then the IRS is going to try and knock you out of being a real estate professional. So I had a client like this that was being audited and the IRS asked for all of a detail of all of his time. And really the only thing he was semi-retired and most of his time was spent on his real estate. And he did document that he spent over 750 hours and it took a long time because we had to go through all his time and detail it and put together a spreadsheet and give the IRS a summary. And then the IRS told us, oh, well, this this doesn't count and that doesn't count. And so they were being very picky about his time and trying to. So there's been a lot of cases on that and a lot of them that the IRS has won. There is a high chance of being audited if you have a small amount of real estate investments and you're trying to say you're a real estate professional. So the IRS is pretty aggressive on that. And so you need to be very diligent in how you document your time and make sure you really qualify. So if you have a full-time job doing something unrelated to real estate, it's going to be very difficult to qualify as a real estate professional. The good thing is that for a married couple, it could be either spouse. So if one of the spouses is considered a real estate professional, then all of the losses qualify as active real estate losses. So the main reason for being a real estate professional is yeah, two reasons. There's two benefits. One is if you have income from your real estate activities, rental income, it's not subject to the 3.8% tax, that 3.8% Obamacare tax that was added. Mm-hmm. And But if you have losses, those losses will be considered active and they can be offset against active income. So for example, wages, or they can be offset against um, interest dividends. If it's passive, then the income is subject to regular taxes plus the 3.8%. And the losses can only be offset against passive income. Mm-hmm. So it's beneficial to be a real estate professional, but it's also difficult. Mm-hmm. Is that, is so that you can declare losses against all the other income if you're a real estate professional? Right. You can deduct your rental activity losses against all other types of income. So it doesn't matter where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And then if you're not a real estate professional, they cap how much you can. Yeah, you deduct. can only offset it against passive income. So you can only oh. offset it against, like, say, if you have partnership investments in, in an active trader business that you're not involved with, or if you have other rental properties that are generating income. So, but it, you can't offset it against interest, dividends, capital gains from securities, wage income, retirement income, none of that stuff counts. Because so, it's a different source. It's not passive, so yeah. you, can't, you can't deduct. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Where is it that I heard that you could only deduct up to $25,000 in losses or something like that? Yeah, that's if somebody has, it's 25000 of losses are deductible, if, but you have to have under a certain amount of AGI. If I remember correctly, it starts phasing out, well, I'm not 100% sure, but they could caps at 150. So if you have a, over 150 of AGI, you, you that $25,000 allowance is wiped out. Mm. I think it starts to be phased out at 125, maybe 100. Okay. And so is it, that where they're calling it suspended losses? Like you're saving the losses for later when you sell the property? Well, the 25,000 is an allowance for low income taxpayers that have up to 25,000 of net rental losses. Okay. If the losses are suspended, then they're carried forward. Some of my clients have millions of dollars of suspended losses. Yeah, it gets carried forward. 
Mm-hmm. And it gets carried for as long as you're alive. So when the person dies, then it disappears. But as long as the person is alive, those suspended losses get carried forward. It can be offset against future passive income. Mm-hmm. The other thing is when you dispose of the activity, you can offset the losses against the gain of the activity. And if you have any losses that are left on the activity that you disposed of, you can take those losses. Okay, so, by activity, you mean if I sell the property, right? In plain English, that's like, if I sell the property? Yeah. So if you had $3 million of suspended passive losses and you sold the property for a, a million dollar gain, mm-hmm. then you would have capital gain on the million. And then you could take that suspended $3 million as an ordinary loss in mm-hmm. that year. So you would have net change in taxable income of decrease of $2 million. But that's only if it's a taxable disposition. If it's a 1031 exchange, those losses carry over to the new property. Oh, they do. Okay. That's good news. Because most people, I think, are exchanging, right? A lot of people are exchanging. I mean, it's getting to the point where it's interesting that exchanges became very rare around 2008, 2009, when the economy went down. And then I started doing a lot of 1031 exchanges as the years have passed. And some of my clients do like a couple, two or three or four 1031 exchanges every year. Wow. Because they're either buying property and they're buying rental property, fixing them up, increasing the rents, increasing the value. And then two or three years later, they're exchanging it for another property and then doing the same thing over again. But some of my clients are taking the money because they're having trouble finding a property that's they're selling their property because they feel like it's overvalued and the cap rates are low. They can't find when they go look for a new property, all the new property they're looking for, they think that's overvalued and may not be a good investment. So some of them are cashing it, just taking the cash. Mm -hmm. And if you have losses to offset that gain, then you're just walking away with that money tax-free, right? Yes. Yeah. So if you have, yeah. So in some cases, if you have enough suspended passive losses, you can just sell it and recognize the gain. Mm -hmm. Actually, it may help you. Investors sitting on that cash, like waiting for a dip in the market again, or. Yeah, they may be investing, <laughs> or they may be investing it in something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do you see a lot of your clients invest cashing in in California and moving their money to other states, or do you see a trend like that? Or well, there's two issues with California. One is because California is a high tax state, and you can no longer deduct. You can only deduct to ten thousand dollars of income taxes and property taxes as an itemized deduction. Mm-hmm. So some of my clients they're thinking about leaving California as a residence and going to a lower, they're going to, some of them are going to Nevada, Florida, Washington state, Texas, states that have no income tax. So that's one thing. The other thing is sometimes people are buying properties outside the state. I had one client this year that they sold an apartment building in LA County and he did a 1031 exchange and he acquired a half a dozen, half a dozen rental homes for but that were back in the I guess the southeast. So some people are buying outside the state. I've had one client that when he first became a client, he only bought in LA County and now he's buying in, in other states, Oregon, Washington, and other parts of California. Hmm. This is kind of around the same subject. So it used to be you could live in a house two out of the last five years and then take whatever profit from that home and it's tax-free, right? Did they change that rule? No, the rule hasn't. I think there was some minor changes to it, but in general, the rule stays the same. If it's your main residence, 
and two out of five years before you sell it. If you're single, you can exclude up to 250000 If you're married, you can exclude up to 500000 mm-hmm. So it's not tax-free. So that didn't change then, okay. Yeah, uh, one planning point is if, let's say, somebody has a gain that's greatly in excess of 500000 then another idea is to turn it into a rental property and do a 1031 exchange. So if somebody, there's people that bought homes maybe 20 years ago for a million that are now worth 5 million. Yep. And so what they could do is they could turn that home into a rental property and then take the 5 million, say after they've rented it out for a year or so, then they could dispose of the property and take the 5 million and buy some investment property, something like that. There's also ways to do both partial sale. There's ways to benefit from both the 1031 exchange and the two hundred fifty or $500,000 exclusion if you do it right. Because a person, let's say they live in it as their main home for two years, and then they rent it out for two years, and then at the end of four years, they do a 1031 exchange, but they take out 500000 of cash. I mean, I'd have to look into this further and work it out with somebody, but it's possible that they could both defer the gain over 500000 and get the $500,000 cash tax-free because mm-hmm. it was both a rental property and a former principal residence of theirs. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, I've recommended that to a few people that have a pretty sizable gain on their hands, and I was curious if they had changed that or not. Okay, and then what are the kind of the main changes for a regular taxpayer that doesn't own property that maybe just has some securities or something. What do you think the main, I know you said California, we didn't get a lot out of this deal, but what would be the main things you think we did get out of this deal? If you're just like a W-2 employee and maybe make under a hundred thousand, what would you say the benefits were in the tax law? Well, just off the top of my head, the, so the tax brackets went down. So the tax rates are lower. The standard deduction was increased. I think basically doubled to 12000 for single and 24000 for married. So if people were barely itemizing or they weren't able to itemize, they could have benefited from it. The child care, I think the child care credits increased. So there was, so for a low-income taxpayer that wasn't itemizing, generally they should be better off. They mm-hmm. may save $500,000, $2,000 in taxes. Yeah, but if somebody itemized, the downside is that a lot of the itemized deductions are now limited or went away. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So do you have any tips or strategies for investors today, knowing what you know about the changes in the tax law? What would you suggest people do to get ready or to what could someone do to put themselves in a better position tax-wise? First thing would be talk to their tax advisor and sit down with them and see, because it's very complicated. And I get people, clients and people I meet come to me and say, oh, I heard so-and-so on this. I heard somebody you could do this. And so it's really kind of hard just to do this based on hearsay. Mm -hmm. So the the thing is, is to find or get or have a good tax advisor and sit down with them. So if your audience doesn't do this on a normal basis, at least this year, it'd be good to, now that it's after April 15th, it'd be good to sit down with the tax advisor now and maybe just take an hour of their time and go over everything and ask them, pick their brain and say, okay, what should I do this year to get ready for taking full advantage of the tax law? And there's still the old tax law. I mean, there's still tax law change, maybe 20% of the things, but it's not just the new tax law, but how it integrates with the law Mm -hmm. 
that was unchanged. So they amended the tax law is about a thousand pages of amendments to various code sections. And we're still waiting for guidance from the IRS and some things. I mean, some people criticize the law that it was some things were done last minute and not well written and not um, not completely unambiguous. And so some things we're waiting for the IRS to tell us what their interpretation is. And in the meantime, we're trying to take our best understanding of it. Let's see. I think that's all the questions. I'm looking to see if there's any questions. No. So I guess that's it for today, unless you have other things you want to... What are the changes in capital gains? It's unchanged. It's still maximum of 20%. So it's still the same thing. Okay. I thought maybe that that had changed. Okay. The only thing that changed for capital gains that I could think of right now is the carried interest. So Mm -hmm. if somebody is like a real estate syndicator or promoter and they get a carried interest, instead of a one-year holding period to get capital gains, there's a three-year holding period. So that's probably pretty, some of my clients are in that situation, but that's the main thing I could think of that impacted capital gains is this new carried interest holding period. So we heard that on the news, this whole carried interest, and I think most of us don't understand what that even means. So what is carried interest and who usually benefits from that? And I guess you're saying it from one year to three years. What does that mean? Another thing it's called is a profits interest. And it's not just promoters. It could affect some of your clients if they they get a profits interest in the company they work for. Mm. Um, say their boss gives them a interest in the partnership or something like that and says, okay, you get 10% of the income of the company from now on, or that would be a profits interest. So the way in business, so in a real estate syndicator, what he may do is he gathers money from investors and he buys some real estate. And in the agreement, he says, okay, the investor gets their money back, gets a preferred return of, say, 6%. And then after that, the promoter gets a 20% carried interest on the gain. And then after that, it gets split based on how people invested their money. So if they say this million-dollar property sold for $2 million, it's a million-dollar gain, and the promoter has a 20% carried interest, so he'd get 20% or $200,000 of the million. If the property was only held for two years, that 200000 may be taxed as ordinary income instead of as long-term capital gains. So the investors would get long-term capital gains, but the promoter might have ordinary income. Which um, is a higher tax bracket. That's why it's bad, right? Right, bad. <laughs> yeah, ordinary <laughs> income. So ordinary income is generally taxed at 37% and capital gains at 20%. Okay. Those are the general maximum rates. So, so you, want, you want it to be much. looked at like a capital gain so that you can pay the lower taxes. Right. And there's been some commentary. This carried interest holding period of three years may be have a narrow application that it may. We're looking at that and we're we're looking into what the guidance is and what the conclusion is going to be and how broad this new law is going to be applied. But right now, I think some people are taking an aggressive position that it doesn't apply to real estate syndicators. But if they're wrong, then they owe more tax when the tax man comes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so syndicator means someone who puts a bunch of investors together in some kind of legal format and promises a certain return. Generally it's a partnership. And so he may collect a hundred thousand dollars from 10 people and he may or may not put his own money in. And then he'll take that million dollars, go buy the property. He'll manage the property. He'll, make improvements to the property and he'll try and sell the property at a gain somewhere down the road, usually after 
five to seven years. Mm, okay. Okay, good. Yeah, we have a guest coming on, uh, Mr. Trowbridge, I guess, has written a lot of books about syndicating real estate. And so hopefully he can give us some clarification on how to do that to make your money move faster. Maybe I'm familiar with him. Is he an attorney? Uh-huh. Gene Trowbridge? Yeah, oh, yeah. I think, yeah, he used to be a real estate syndicator. And then yeah. he became an attorney that specializes in real estate syndications. Yeah. Right. I was on a panel with him about a year ago, and sometimes I coordinate with him on certain client issues. So he's going to come on and explain to us how that works, because some people want to take their real estate businesses to the next level, and if you only have so much cash savings to do it, that's the next step for a lot of people. So that'll be interesting. Okay, so I think that was all my questions. I'd just like to clarify certain words that you use, too. And what's a promoter? You said promoter earlier. Can you explain to people what that is? Well, promoter or real estate syndicator or general partner or managing member of the LLC. So it's the person that puts the deal together, that gathers the investor money and buys the property. Yeah. So I'm kind of using those terms interchangeably. Got it. Okay. Good to know. Okay, good. So if someone wanted to talk to you personally about their situation or their taxes or want to have a some kind of tax planning meeting like you were talking about earlier, how would they get a hold of you? Well, they can call me. My direct line is 310-697-1501. And you can go to my website and that has the phone number on it. And the website is richardwellingllp.com. So if you just Google Richard Welling, you'll find me. You'll also find an artist named Richard Welling that's from Connecticut that uh, did renderings of buildings, but that's not me. That's I'm, not you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can have more than one business. <laughs> yeah, you also you also find a physician in Juneau, Alaska. That's a cousin of mine. But generally, if you put Richard Welling LLP, you'll find my website. And also, there's a section that has we try to put out an article every week on different tax planning ideas. So those, some of those are helpful that could yeah. fill in some of the blanks that we're talking about. So there's a insight section on our website that you can look at. And people can sign up for your newsletter too, right? Because I, I think I receive it. You push it out through an email blast or something like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. someone can sign up for your tips, your newsletter. Right. Yeah. We can just add them to our CRM, add them to our list, and mm-hmm. we'll just send them out. Okay. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot for joining me, Richard. This has been really enlightening, and I think people had a lot of misconceptions, so it's helped a lot and was very plain language. So I appreciate that. Thank thanks for joining us. Okay. Okay. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye. This has been another episode of My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We wish you all the success you deserve as you use what you've learned here out in the real world. Check out the blog post for this episode, along with many more helpful resources at mycashflowacademy.com.